This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. A new report by an interdisciplinary team of scholars from the University of California, Berkeley, aims to help local level policymakers better understand how cybersecurity risks vary among different smart city technologies. The report titled, The Cybersecurity Risks of Smart City Technologies, What Do the Experts Think?, presents results from a 2020 survey that ranked different technologies according to underlying technical vulnerabilities, their attractiveness to potential attackers, and the impact of a successful serious cyber attack. What are smart city technologies? Do all smart city technologies pose equivalent cybersecurity risks? And what are some of the most prevalent cyber threats posed by these technologies? I will explore these questions and so much more with my guests, Allison Post and Alex Pam, co-authors of The Cybersecurity Risks of Smart City Technologies, What Do the Experts Think? Allison and Alex, welcome to the show. It's great to have you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So your recent report, The Cybersecurity Risks of Smart City Technologies, offers insights into the security risks of smart city technology. So for our audience, what is meant by the term smart city? And perhaps you could outline the purported benefits associated with the term and the level of investments made in pursuing the promises of such a concept. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Smart city technologies can be defined as systems, technical systems that use information and communication technologies to improve urban services and infrastructure. They can be adopted by city or county governments, by special district governments, or other organizations or entities that provide services at the local level. Common examples you might have heard of include outfitting infrastructure with sensors that alert governments uh, to when systems need to be repaired, open data portals for local governments, um, and video surveillance and associated crime analytics systems. Local public agencies tend to adopt these systems for a variety of different reasons, including um, uh, cost savings uh, and improved efficiency or improving service quality for the same price. So an example of this we might think of uh, as a system that automatically alerts the public works department in a city when street lamp bulbs need to be replaced. Um, this means that bulbs may re be replaced more quickly and without cumbersome manual inspections. Another objective or reason uh, cities might adopt these systems is for co conservation or environmental purposes. For example, new systems that can detect leakages and water system pipes using sensors or satellite imagery, for example, can help utilities identify leaks earlier and save water. 
An alternative motivation would be to increase government transparency. Open data portals, online broadcasts of city council meetings, online postings of RFPs and meeting minutes, all these things make it easier for citizens to monitor what their governments are doing. And then a final reason that uh, cities often consider for adopting them is it can make it easier for citizens to participate in the policymaking process. Online public comment portals, systems for registering complaints about services online, et cetera, are often adopted with these intentions in mind. That's terrific. You know, uh, there are critics of smart city technologies, as you point out in your report, um, and, and they point to the potential threats posed when jurisdictions adopt digital systems. I was wondering, do all smart city technologies pose equivalent cybersecurity risks? And more importantly, what are some of the most prevalent cyber risks posed by these technologies? Yeah, so one of the main takeaways from our report is that smart city technologies actually vary considerably in the cybersecurity risks that they pose. Um, Not all technologies are created equal in this regard. So local public agencies need to take this into account when considering um, whether to adopt certain technologies. And our study considers this variation. Um, And so you mentioned the most prevalent cyber threats, and I can kind of walk through some examples of those across the different types of technologies. Um, One example would be shutting down systems or access to systems for an extended period of time. Um, One example of that is with smart traffic lights, so um, shutting down a traffic light network. Um, Another threat is by undermining service quality or making services dangerous. Um, There was a recent example of this type of attack on the city water system in Oldsmar, where an attacker attempted to alter chemical concentrations in the water supply after infiltrating the SCADA system. This happened in early February of this year. Cyber attacks can also spread false information. Um, One example that came up a lot in our research is through emergency alerts, since a hacker could potentially gain access to a database of contact information for everyone in a city, Um, And then this disinformation could cause havoc, and um, hackers can also use the emergency alert system to send political or marketing messages. Ransomware can prevent employees from accessing computer systems, and some examples from the interviews we did were, um, as I mentioned earlier, if the database of contact information becomes corrupted for whatever reason, a city would be unable to send alerts out to systems. And then finally, one additional threat is privacy breaches. Um, Cyber attacks can result in the theft of personal information of residents um, or those consuming services such as home addresses, phone numbers, and credit card information associated with billing. In your study, Alex and Allison, your research builds on existing scholarship in cybersecurity. One thing I found very interesting is the framework you developed for your study. Uh, Would you elaborate on your efforts to develop a framework for assessing the relative risk posed by different technologies? And and what are some of the key questions local government executives should ask prior to the adoption and use of smart city type technologies? Great. Thanks, Michael. Um, So as you mentioned, we engaged with the existing scholarship and literature on uh, cybersecurity. And based on this engagement, came up with a framework um, that local government agencies can use to uh, evaluate the cyber risks posed by different technologies. And this framework really emphasizes three different contributors to cyber risk. The first is the underlying uh, vulnerabilities in the technical systems. The second is the potential impact of a cyber attack if a successful one occurs. 
And the third is the presence of capable threat actors who would be interested in these impacts. So I'm going to just provide a little bit more detail of each of these on each of these three components. So um, let's think about this, this uh, notion of the underlying technical risks for a particular technology. Here, what we're thinking about is how large the attack service is for that technology, which is getting at the number of possible entry points for an attack. Some systems, there may only be one point of entry, but in other systems, they actually have multiple places where uh, users or providers can actually interface with the system. A related point is how complex the technology, the technology is and how many interdependencies exist between systems. So that's one facet or contributor to cyber risk is the riskiness um, of the underlying technology. A second contributor, however, is the potential impact of a successful cyber attack. Um, and here we can ask ourselves questions like, um, you know, what would be the impact of an attack on services? Would service disruptions uh, occur? How consequential would such service disruptions be? Would service disruptions not only affect that particular system, but also other systems? Um, one could also ask, for example, would personal data be comprised by uh, be compromised by an attack? What sort of data would be compromised, and at what sort of scale? Um, would it just be a few people, or you know, all users of the system that would lose their personal data or have it taken? Um, and what would be the impacts on public trust of that type of breach, or on local agency finances if uh, a ransom is is charged, for example? Um, so it's really important to think about these potential impacts because this is often what potential threat actors are actually interested in. And they may be willing to work very hard to attack a technology that may not be particularly vulnerable in technical terms if the potential impact is large. And then a third component is whether or not there's a capable organization uh, that would be likely to execute an effective cyber attack on the particular technology. Now, this means thinking about which potential attackers are likely to be most effective. And this is something that we look at in our survey. Um, and just to preview our findings briefly, we find that nation state uh, threat actors, as well as disgruntled insiders within a given service provider or bureaucracy are likely to be the most effective threat actors. Um, and then the follow-on question is, will these particularly capable threat actors be interested in that particular technology? And here we come back to the impact of the attack. Um, we would need to think about when nation states, for example, are particularly likely to find the potential impact of an attack on a specific technology to be worthwhile and of interest uh, to them. Um, so, these are the sorts of um, factors that we think lo local governments should be considering. They should be thinking about these three different co contributors or components um, to cyber risk. That is a wonderful insight, actually, and really, really important questions that you folks pose and identify in your report. I was wondering, what does this approach fail to capture in terms of, of important sor sources of variation in cybersecurity? So kind of what does it fail to capture in your mind? Great. So, so we're focused in, in this particular study on understanding variation across technologies, but there are lots of other factors that affect cyber risk. Um, and in particular, local public agencies should consider things like the following. Um, 
whether or not uh, they have an adequate level of cyber protections overall within their public agency to guard against attacks, including firewalls, regular security updates, um, building security that prevent people coming in and accessing machines within, um, within their physical plant, et cetera. A second thing to think about is the training and behavior of personnel who are actually using technology. Um, you know, many breaches come through people clicking through on links and email or using USB keys. These are things that training can, can help a great deal with. Um, third is that vendors also vary in the protections that they build into their systems. So it's important to assess the quality of cyber protections that are built into a particular system. Some vendors will place more emphasis on cybersecurity than others. And having good in-house IT expertise can help local public agencies make sure that there are, they're reasonably well positioned to evaluate available products and systems. Um, it can also help to consult with peer agencies that may have already adopted the technology or system one is considering. So these are all important factors. They're not the focus of our specific report here, but they are additional factors that local public agencies should keep in mind. That's terrific that you that you outlined those. I was wondering, could you tell us more about the study design? How did you conduct the survey? I believe it was a survey. Who participated? How were they selected? And, and perhaps uh, you could outline the method you used. Yeah, we conducted the survey online through Qualtrics, which is a common survey platform. And we recruited participants through professional organizations and cybersecurity conferences. And we also publicized the survey on, online on social media accounts for the Center, Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity at Berkeley, um, prominent cybersecurity credential organizations, and other influential cybersecurity experts. Um, so to kind of screen for these participants, we included a question um, that asked respondents about their experience with cybersecurity and smart city technologies. Overall in the survey, 76% of respondents reported that their jobs involved cybersecurity. And then half of these respondents worked in the private sector, while the remaining half worked in the public sector, educational institutions, or were self-employed or independent contractors. And then as another screener, we included a question that asked about respondents' familiarity with smart city technologies that we included in, in the study. So if a respondent hadn't heard of a technology at all, they weren't shown later questions about the vulnerability or impact of cyber attack on that technology. Uh, and then you asked about the, the method that we used in the survey. We asked respondents to rank technologies along um, the three dimensions of risk, technical vul vulnerability, uh, potential impact of su successful attack, and whether or not uh, threat actors would be interested in that particular technology. Um, and then we also asked respondents to describe the sorts of attack scenarios that they had in mind when they ranked the technologies. And then in addition to the survey, we followed up with expert interviews with uh, nine experts in um, emergency or security alerts and in smart water meters and water consumption tracking. I was wondering, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, um, but uh, it really would be interesting to understand the smart technologies that were included in this study and why, and perhaps you could break them down once again, according to the sector and the specific technologies. Thanks, Michael. Um, we included nine technologies overall in the, in the study across three different sectors. And these sectors were water and sanitation, transportation, and public security or policing. We deliberately focused on three quite different sectors or service areas so as to capture a really nice range of, of local government services. Um, these also happen to be areas in which various team members have had longstanding expertise so we could you know, build on existing knowledge. 
Within each service area, we chose technologies that varied in terms of the technical complexity and size of the attack surface. So basically this, this technical contributor to vulnerability that, um, that, that we, we sensed was going to be very important. So within water and sanitation, we looked at smart waste or recycling bins, satellite water leak detection systems, and water consumption tracking systems, also known as smart meters. In transportation, we looked at smart tolling systems, smart traffic lights and signals, and public transit open data. And just to explain a little bit about what this public transit open data is, what we're referring to are GTFS um, feeds. These are uh, this is information that transit agencies distribute about the schedule for um, the arrival and departure of particular buses or trains. Um, and often these, these, these systems can um, provide real-time data on the actual location of, of buses or trains so that um, individuals know how long they have to wait. Um, within the security and policing space, we looked at emergency and security alerts, gunshot detection systems, and street video surveillance systems. So these are the nine we focused on across these three sectors. We've of course left out many important smart city technologies, um, but there was a limit to the amount of time we could ask our respondents to spend with a survey. So we decided to focus on just these nine. Um, you, you did mention the smart waste recycling bins and satellite water leakage systems. And you, you point in your, out in your report that they are perceived to be less vulnerable than other technologies such as emergency or security alerts. I was wondering why is that the case? Yeah, so when um, we asked the question for to rank the vulnerability of certain technologies, emergency or security alerts, street video surveillance, and smart traffic lights were consistently ranked as the most vulnerable. Um, and when we were looking through survey responses, we found that when assessing vulnerability, experts were considering the attack surface, like Allison mentioned earlier, um, how connected the systems are, so whether access to one device in the system can then provide access to other devices or all devices in the system, and then the human factor, which is um, use, like, use of global passwords, for example, to, to log in or to access a system. Um, so more specifically, emergency or security alerts were considered vulnerable because not only is the technology widely deployed, but there is an expanded attack service with many potential access points. Um, it might be the case that you would want to provide access to multiple parties. Um, for example, if there's an earthquake, you don't know when it would happen, who might be on duty to respond. Uh, so you want to provide access to the system for everyone who's on staff. In terms of the connectivity, um, traffic lights, access to one traffic light might give a hacker access to the rest of the system, allowing the hacker to then manipulate the entire traffic network. Other than smart waste recycling bins and satellite water leakage systems, we also talked to experts within um, smart water meter or consumption tracking technology, which was also a technology that was considered less technically vulnerable. Um, and these experts kind of walked us through the, um, the process of securing water meter systems, which makes them less vulnerable to attack. So um, a water meter collects readings and then this, this meter reading is encrypted and broadcast over radio frequency then stored in a data center. Um, and utilities access this information by logging into their system to, to see the readings and pair that with billing information. Um, and so the experts we talked to said that the main source of vulnerability is actually on the utility end and dependent on the internal security at the utility. And um, there's, there's a few different access points that I mentioned, but each of 
these access points where data are collected and transmitted are well secured. Um, so the smart meter supplier has a dedicated licensed radio frequency that's provided and regulated by the FCC. Um, the data centers that store data are the same ones used by banks and other large businesses. So suppliers have confidence that these are secure. And then again, all data from smart meters are encrypted and not tied to customer information in any way until it gets to the utility. Um, so in that sense, all these different access points where potential hackers could gain access to the system, all these are well secured against attack. Do all smart city technologies pose equivalent cybersecurity risks? We will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness. Joining me today are Allison Post and Alex Pan, co-authors of The Cybersecurity Risks of Smart City Technologies. What do the experts think? I was wondering, you, you mentioned your survey experts, and I, I'd be interested to understand what types of attack scenarios uh, were envisioned by the survey experts and, and which are more uh, of a threat, say, the nation state, or the cyber criminal uh, network, or both? The most common impact scenarios that were brought up in the survey were tampering with traffic lights, which could lead to car accidents or gridlock, um, spoofed security alerts that could create mass panic, and hacking street video surveillance to shut off during the terrorist attack or altering security footage. Um, so to kind of expand on these exam examples a little bit, um, respondents said that tampering with traffic lights could lead to accidents, traffic, and gridlock, which would cause chaos and panic and also make it harder for emergency vehicles or first responders to arrive at a scene um, and which could leave a city more vulnerable to further attacks. And then similarly, interfering with video surveillance could allow terrorists or criminals to get away with an attack by erasing video evidence. For emergency or security alerts, um, not only did experts come up with some scenarios in the survey, but there have also been demonstrated examples of these attacks on these technologies or instances where false alerts have been sent and created mass panic. One notable example that was brought up in the survey and interviews is a false alert that was sent in Hawaii that was part of a system test and this actually occurred due to human error. Um, another example is, this happened a few years ago that earthquake sirens were going off in the middle of the night in San Francisco. And so these false alerts not only create panic and were extremely disruptive to residents when they happened, but continued false alerts over time could erode trust in the alert system overall. And then just 
as kind of a negative example for um, a technology where experts didn't think that an attack would be impactful for water consumption tracking. Right now, there's limited technology that allows for controlling water systems. For example, like wouldn't be able to use smart water meters to cut off water to a property. Um, water meters are strictly monitoring and sending meter readings. And this, these data that are being sent are the same data that prior to smart meters, if you were walking down the street, you would have been able to read this information off the meter anyways. So the, the experts that we talked to couldn't really think of anyone who would be interested in um, accessing these data. And with respect to the actors that pose the biggest threats, uh, you mentioned na nation states and cyber criminals. In our survey, respondents considered nation states to be a much bigger security threat in terms of the effectiveness of these threat actors to carry out a successful cyber attack. So for nation states, respondents said that a lot of nation states are already waging cyber war and almost every major SCADA attack has been tied back to a nation state or a nation state funded group. Um, so overall nation states have the most tools and resources to carry out these attacks and cyber criminals just don't have the same levels of funding and manpower to execute um, these cyber attacks. Interesting. You know, I, I like to stay on the idea of the nation state. Your survey experts indicated, I, I think, in your three technologies and ranked them as most vulnerable and impactful and of the greatest interest to nation state actors. Um, could you tell us what they are and why they are of such uh, interest to state actors? Respondents indicated that nation states would be most interested in three of the technologies we included in our study. The first was emergency and security alerts that Alex was just talking about, second, street video surveillance systems, and third, start smart traffic light signals systems. Um, and as Alex was describing in terms of these impact scenarios, um, attacks on these three particular technologies could cause the most widespread panic among the population, among the different technologies that we looked at. Misuse of these systems would also decrease public trust uh, and confidence in government, which is really one of the main objectives of these nation state actors when they're executing attack. We've already just discussed how false emergency alerts could decrease confidence in the accuracy of messages in the future, leading to problems with compliance with evacuation orders and other alerts in the future. Let's discuss another example. Imagine, for example, that video, uh, video surveillance systems were infiltrated and images were altered. What would the impact of uh, be on trust in such footage when they were used in criminal trials following an accident if people knew or suspected that this sort of footage could be easily altered? How willing would individuals be to have such systems in their neighborhood if they did not trust how the data would be used or that it would record their comings and goings accurately? So just backing up, I think the, the headline point is that attacks on these types of systems can cause short-run panic and damage, but then also have this very nefarious effect potentially on um, trust in government uh, in the medium and long run as well. That's interesting. So cybersecurity experts judged emergency and security alerts, smart traffic signals, and video surveillance to be much riskier than any other uh, technologies, as you both have pointed out, Allison and Alex, but yeah, I was wondering, what are the key factors for this variation? There are two factor, two key factors that we identified through the survey. Um, one is the attack surface that we've discussed a little bit so far. The other is the ubiquity of the technology. So I'll, I'll provide a little bit more detail on that now. Um, so the attack surface, any system that requires more inputs and outputs from a broader set of people will be more vulnerable. So as I talked about earlier with if there's an earthquake, like there needs to be a set of people who might be responding that 
require access to emergency alerts. And then comparing like emergency alert systems and video surveillance systems to water consumption tracking or smart waste recycling bins, like there's more people that would need access to the former technologies than the, the latter. In terms of the ubiquity of the technology, um, this kind of relates to the level of general awareness of the technology. So one example given in an interview is that for emergency alert systems, since so many people in the general population receive these alerts, even for people with no cybersecurity experience or no technical understanding, people still have a general idea of how emergency alerts work. Um, in comparison, since fewer people are aware of how water consumption tracking works, it would be more difficult for them to understand how to attack these systems. Outside of these, the evaluations in the survey also considered potential impacts of attacks, whether nation states or disgruntled insiders would be interested in these particular technologies. Uh, and those, the three uh, technologies that I mentioned, emergency alert systems, video surveillance, um, and smart traffic signals, those were consistently ranked the highest for those criteria as well, potential impacts of attack and who would be interested in attacking those technologies. Important information. So I was wondering, to, to what extent are the number of resources available for local agencies that are interested in understanding the potential risk of different technologies? To what extent are these resources increasing? And how can local public agencies make use of, the, of these resources when you know, making an assessment of the cyber risk posed by a particular technology? So fortunately, as you've alluded to with your question, um, there is not only a growing awareness of cyber risks, but there are new resources coming online to help local public agencies um, make more informed uh, choices about cyber risks and the adoption of specific smart city technologies. And we cover a few of these in the report. I'll, I'll outline those as well as some additional ones in my comments here. So the first is that the Department of Homeland Security at the national level has placed increasing emphasis on cyber risk over time. And um, in particular, it has a whole critical infrastructure program that is devoted to thinking about um, cyber risk and other types of risks to many types of local government systems. And the department offers training programs for local public officials, uh, which um, from what I understand from those who have attended are, are very, very helpful um, in terms of understanding you know, what, what factors to consider as well as how to think about responding in the context of an ongoing attack. Second, there are academic programs and institutions. MIT, for example, offers online courses and certification programs focused specifically on the cybersecurity of smart city technologies. There are also efforts run by membership organizations, and I'll cite just two in the water sector, the American Water Works Association and the Technology Approval Group run committees uh, and, and conference type meetings in which they examine the cybersecurity risks of specific technologies that are being considered within um, the water sector. These meetings and networks can really allow local officials to learn from one another. And this is particularly important for smaller agencies that may not have a lot of in-house resources to consider these types of risks. And also for, for agencies that are not the first adopters. You know, there are large utilities, perhaps better resourced utilities that you know, maybe trying the new technologies out. Um, but this offers an opportunity for smaller agencies to learn from those experiences. And these meetings um, and membership organizations can provide a setting for that. A fourth resource is actually vendors themselves. Um, they often off offer trainings on cyber risk. So Honeywell, for example, which is a manufacturer of SCADA systems, 
offers trainings for utility and, and municipal government employees who are uh, using their systems. A broader point is that for any local public agency, it's important to ensure that you have in-house expertise in cybersecurity so that you are better positioned to evaluate alternative uh, systems and consider the sorts of protections that it's important to implement in-house if you're going to adopt new systems. And this often runs against the grain of the siloing that is very natu- occurs very naturally in local public agencies. It can be a hassle to have to have the IT department vet all purchases all software um, or other types of system purchases that you know different departments are adopting, but it can be a very important part of the process, especially if the technology in a question is attractive to hackers because of the potential impact of an attack. Rather than embracing new technologies as quickly as possible or, or rejecting new tools across the board due to cyber concerns, I was wondering to what extent should city officials, local officials, agency leaders uh, weigh the cost and benefits of each technology on a case-by-case basis. How important is that? Yeah, I think our research has shown that these smart city technologies exhibit a range of vulnerability dependent on the underlying technology and how it's implemented and impact of potential cyber attack. Certain technologies pose greater risks than others. Um, At the same time, adopting smart city technologies can also lead to many benefits. So an example that we've talked about a lot today is emergency or security alerts that were considered the most vulnerable and most impactful smart city technology in the survey. Um, In interviews, however, we learned that security alerts as they exist today were adopted to replace reverse 911 calls that were previously sent to landline phones, since fewer households have landlines now. So there's clear benefits to being able to contact residents of an area quickly in the case of an emergency and through a technology of cell phones that are replacing um, landlines now. And then emergency and security alerts today also have this added technological benefit of being able to target smaller geographic areas. So targeting a neighborhood versus the entire city, um, targeting specific populations, for example, only Spanish speakers, English speakers, et cetera, um, and the ability to send alerts at certain times to be less disruptive. So um, systems that allow residents to choose to receive alerts only at nighttime. So given the potential benefits of adopting emergency and security alerts, cities should ensure that they have security measures in place and that they've considered the potential sources of vulnerability to cyber attack. Wonderful overview of your report, but are are there any other recommendations you would like to share with us? So I think I'd like to just underline some of our key recommendations at this point in the report. Um, The first is one that Alex just spoke to. Cyber threats really vary across smart city technologies and it's up to local agencies to really assess the balance of risk and gains on a case-by-case basis because there are indeed trade-offs. There are important benefits that can come from these technologies, but then there are also these risks that they can introduce and these vary across the different smart city technologies. So simply being alarmist or a champion of these technologies is not the right approach. The right approach is to sort of have a very considered uh, discussion among colleagues of both the gains and and risks and how the risks can be addressed. A second takeaway point from the report is that the risks stem not just from the technology, from from the underlying technical vulnerabilities, but also just as importantly from the potential impact of an attack and whether or not that impact is likely to be of interest to particularly capable threat actors like nation states. And so kind of thinking about your particular system that you manage through that lens um, is 
is really the right way to think about cyber risk. Um, and then a third point is that is is that it's not we're not saying that local governments shouldn't adopt systems that are riskier, like emergency alerts or video surveillance. We're just saying that if they do so, they need to be particularly attentive to cybersecurity. Mm. You know, I was wondering, Allison and Alex, what what prompted your interest in this research? Why did you pursue it? So I'll take a, a first stab at that question. So. Um, my collaborator, Karen Trappenberg Frick, who's who's not on this this call today, and I have had a um, we've both had a longstanding interest in urban infrastructure. She's a professor of urban planning. I'm a professor in in political science who focuses on urban politics. She's worked extensively in transportation, and I've done a lot of work on water systems. Um, we both noticed within our two respective areas of expertise the increasing prevalence of cyber attacks in these sectors and the difficulties faced by public agencies in addressing these types of risks, um, including other types of risks that tend to be underestimated by the public and, and elected officials. At the same time, when you looked at academic research and smart cities, uh, it tends to be dominated by two camps with very opposing points of view. There's one set of scholars uh, on the on the technical end of the spectrum uh, who we could describe as smart city optimists. They have really focused on developing these systems and have been motivated by the important potential benefits we've discussed, factors like increased efficiency or conservation gains. Another set of scholars, largely in urban planning and urban studies, has really focused on the risks posed by smart city technologies, particularly with respect to privacy and surveillance. Um, and as we looked across this landscape of existing scholarship, we felt that a more nuanced approach was really needed and uh, one that recognized the balance of risks and benefits um, and how these varied across different types of technologies. So in light of that, Karen and I worked together to assemble an interdisciplinary team that includes scholars, not just from urban planning and the social sciences, like, like we are, but also from civil engineering and computer science. And this includes um, Alex Pan, who's with us today in civil engineering, um, uh, Giselle Mendoca from, from urban planning, and Nathan Malkin from computer science, um, who are also PhD students at Berkeley. And together we designed this, this project to delve more into this this discussion of variation across smart city technologies in terms of risks. Yeah, I guess I'll just say that I personally have an interest in cybersecurity, particularly as I see like the public sector becoming more um, more well versed in digital technology and what um, what kind of risks that poses and how public um, people who work in the public sector should be um, considering these technologies. Mm -hmm. You report uh, the cybersecurity risks of smart technologies. It was produced or released by the Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. I was wondering, just for our audience, could you give us an overview of the history and mission of the center? Great. So the center um, is, is the entity that funded our research, and we'd like to acknowledge their support in developing this project. Um, the center is its really a premier research and collaboration hub dedicated to building secure digital futures, uh, both within the United States and internationally. It's housed within the School of Information at the University of California, Berkeley. It was founded in 2015 with the express purpose of building bridges between cutting edge academic research and uh, real world industry and policy needs. Uh, the, their approach is built on two key pillars. The first is to focus on the future of digital security. And the second is to expand who participates in, its, in this field. 
Um, the center uh, has pub or sponsors public-private partnerships, research programs, um, and uh, outputs to help decision makers address cyber risks with foresight. Um, and uh, has really worked to nurture a set of students and alumni who can uh, work on cyber issues of cyber risk in technology policy research and practice. Um, and since it was founded in 2015, the center has supported over 200 researchers at Berkeley. Allison and Alex, I, I want to thank you for joining me today and for the discussion of a very important report, the cybersecurity risks of smart cities, uh, smart city technologies. Where can folks get a copy? So they can obtain a copy by going to the website for the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity at UC Berkeley. Wonderful. Well, Allison and Alex, I, I truly want to thank you for joining us on the Business of Government Hour. It's great. It was great to have you. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. Next up, Business of Government Stories, exploring the early years of the internet in government, when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special segment of the Business of Government Hour, Business of Government Stories, how past efforts can inform future successes. Now we turn to the technology ebb and flow over the last 30 years and what the ebbs teach us and what the flows are, how the flows continue to the present day and beyond. But in order to start that, it really goes back to the origins of the internet and its use to deliver the business of government. Here's IBM Center Emeritus Fellow, John Kaminsky, to explain. Well, at the very beginning, at least in the National Performance Review, the uh, notion of the web was still a very open, and the internet, a, a very open uh, topic, and just getting started. So I wasn't really appreciating at that time just how cutting edge uh, things were going, and that the NPR at the time was actually experimenting and trying out a lot of new things. And it wasn't only until later that, uh, on reflection, that I realized just how significant some of the stuff was. I understand our website was one of the first hundred websites in the world. I, I checked the history, and they said that at the end of, 20, uh, of 1993, there were about 600 websites worldwide. So that hundred number probably is correct. <laughs> But there wasn't anything like Adobe to post data with, uh, so it would be in a consistent format. It was just very open. 
And uh, one of the things that we did is we began using the internet to to push out executive orders. And we had this uh, Coast Guard commandant that came in and help us. He would just, with two-finger typing, type in executive orders to send out across the world so that people would know what uh, the latest reinventing government stuff was. So the early internet required some governance structures, some committees, boards, etc. How did that form? Once again, here's John Kaminsky. That evolved after the uh, initial report. There were some recommendations in the report that were very citizen-oriented as opposed to technology-oriented. And uh, a, a small group of people from across agencies came together to try to implement those recommendations. So Jim Fleisick, who was on the original reinventing government team, uh, created what was called the Government Information Technology Services Working Group. And he recruited people from across agencies that were interested in implementing things like improving uh, taxes, improving wireless for law enforcement, a lot of very concrete things that were recommendations of the report. And they each uh, took part of, of trying to pull together small teams to uh, act on each of those recommendations. It wasn't broad across agency. It was more targeted around those specific initiatives. There were in the National Performance Review's report uh, about a dozen specific things. Some of them have yet to be implemented even today. So they had some broad, big ideas. But other ideas like have email for all government employees was uh, something that was pushed through. Legislation and law lagged behind the evolution of the internet. It had to catch up. John Kaminsky explains. Well, the uh, this Government Information Technology Services Working Group helped uh, frame that law. And then once the law was passed, there was an executive order that turned it into the Government Information Technology Services Board. And many of the same people uh, were on that board and they were also, many of them became chief information officers for their agencies because it was the, that role did not exist in, in agencies. And uh, so there was this interplay back and forth, and then eventually the board uh, uh, went away, and it became the CIO council that became the governance structure. How did those activities, how did they combine to teach leaders going forward in terms of technology that enables change in government? What lessons can we take from those early years of the internet in government. Emeritus Fellow John Kaminsky offers his insights. One of the things that I thought was interesting was the interplay between the Government Information Technology Services Board and the CIO Council, is that the board was focused on specific projects, and the council was more on broader governance and how agencies ran. And even though many times there were the same people, they behaved differently in the board which was project-driven as opposed to the CIO Council, which was looking more broadly at governance and uh, technology issues more broadly. And, and so that the same people could behave differently depending on uh, the, uh, the governance structure that was involved. What's interesting is while the GITS board went away, many years later, you had roughly the equivalent created with the U.S. Digital Service, which is project-oriented as opposed to governance system-oriented. And so I think you need a, a combination of both. How has information technology evolved the management of government? More Business of Government stories when we return. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? 
The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special segment of the Business of Government Hour, Business of Government Stories, how past efforts can inform future successes. Richard Spires, long-term industry and government executive, joins us to talk about the evolution of IT and government, but first gives us some background of some of the key IT challenges facing government executives. So, yeah, my first stint was actually coming into the IRS to run the Business Systems Modernization Program. And, you know, it was interesting. I uh, I hadn't planned on coming into government, but uh, I was asked to come in, and you know, it was such a large, complex uh, program that was struggling, and uh, I just can't stay away from challenges like that. Um, so I did come in, and after about 20 years in the private sector, and really two things um, that I struggled with. Um, you know, the, the, the first was that uh, having not worked in government, I, I didn't realize you know, even though people tell you these things, you still got to learn some of these lessons yourself. I didn't realize just the complexity that goes with the stakeholder engagement, um, both within an agency, um, those that you need to work with to get things done, but also outside an agency. In the federal government, of course, you have OMB. Um, you've got your, um, uh, you've got the Hill in Congress and uh, GAO. Um, and your own inspector general, and these are all stakeholders. And you know, in, if you do that well, it, it can really help you. And if you if you don't handle that well, um, particularly on large visible programs, um, it can really set you back. And so, learning the ropes there uh, took quite a while. Actually, that was probably the thing that I that I struggled with the most. Uh, but one other thing, um, and this was again a wake up call. Uh, we, we talk about culture a lot, and it's kind of this amorphous term, but, but, it, but it is real. And, you know, I came in to IRS with the mandate. I mean, the, the, the program was struggling. This was the third time trying to do modernization. I had a real mandate to drive change. But you got to be careful. Um, I remember my boss at the time, who was the then CIO, took me out to lunch probably four or five months into into my tenure at the IRS, and we had a lunch, and, and he said something to me that just staggered me. It was, he said, Richard, you're a talented guy. Um, you're doing some good things, but I don't think you're going to make it in this agency much longer. And I was just like so taken aback by that. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, you, you've got to be able to work within our culture. Um, doesn't mean our culture is necessarily always right, but you got to be able to work within it and then change. And that, you know, that was a real lesson for me. And I must have done something right because you know, about two and a half years later, um, when he then left, I was asked to become the CIO of, of the IRS. It, I remember going back after that lunch and, and really talking to my wife and really thinking about it and, and just changing my attitude. You know, when I tell people, I would never ask people to change their values. I would never ask them to, to do something they didn't feel comfortable with. 
But that's different than working within an environment, understanding the environment, and understanding how to get things done in that environment uh, to drive meaningful change. So I would say it's those two things that, that are really where the real lessons learned, the, the need to really um, engage across all of your stakeholders in government, and the need to, to understand the culture of the agency you're working with and work within that culture to help drive change. Richard Spires continues outlining critical success factors in terms of how IT legislation like FITARA has better positioned federal agency CIOs. I worked at, at both the IRS and, and was the IRS CIO for a while, and I also then came back into government as the DHS CIO. And there was a really, really stark difference between the two. At the IRS, um, you know, after I started working within the culture, and started having some success and driving real change, um, was able to work at a level, um, gain the confidence of the then commissioner of the IRS, was really able to work uh, in partnership uh, with the, if you will, the agency's leadership at the commissioner level, but also at the business unit level. And so I felt like that was the right relationship for a CIO working with the mission and business leaders in government agency to drive real change. And we put a great governance structure in place and we just, you know, it was a lot of positive momentum that I, I felt like we, we, we made happen. When I came back in the government in DHS, the, the environment, if you will, the culture, the way that the CIO was positioned was just completely different. Obviously different environment because it was highly federated. Um, where you had all these, we called them components like TSA and FEMA and the like. But so it was a different structure that way. But but even more to the point, it didn't have the dynamic, uh, that positive dynamic of partnership that I saw. It was too much, if, in my view, of the mission or business leadership just kind of driving their own agenda, um, putting in IT systems or procuring IT systems without uh, doing all of the right planning, without uh, adhering to the right standards, without trying to, to draw synergies across the organization. And I don't want to indict people. I mean, it was really just where the, the organization DHS was at the time. And so that really made me think about as, and, and Klinger Cohen had not been successful uh, because a lot of the tenants we talk about of having an empowered CIO that can really be a partner with the with the mission and business leadership was was really instantiated in Clinger Cohen. It just was never really used or enforced. So when there was um, some impetus on the Hill uh, to the likes of uh, Daryl Issa and Jerry Conley to say, hey, we're just not doing this well. I, I was certainly one of the individuals that was talking to them and their staffs about the importance of having this right kind of model in place, the model that, that we really were able to put in place at the IRS that I felt worked so well, contrasted with what I was experiencing then at DHS. And, and so I, and I've come to believe in, in my private sector career as well and seeing that model work, that is the right model. It really needs to be a good partnership model. And if you get that going right, it can make very, very substantial difference. So I have been pleased with the fact that Tatara uh, did pass and it, it is empowering to the CIO and that um, based on congressional oversight, uh, that agencies have responded. It doesn't mean we're 
where we need to be yet in terms of IT management, but it certainly is a, uh, a next step forward that I think has been quite positive. Long-term industry and government IT executive Richard Spires continues to be positive, giving his insights and advice on those success factors driving IT transformation in the U.S. federal government. I mean, digital transformation or IT transformation is certainly uh, you know, sweeping every single industry, and it needs to sweep through government as well. And we're seeing some positive signs. I think the use of cloud uh, technologies uh, and new models, certainly agile development, DevOps, being able to deliver functionality uh, much more incrementally, much quicker, getting feedback from users is certainly best practice today. And we're seeing a lot more in government. That's great. But that being said, I, I still think we have this dynamic, particularly at the federal government level, where um, while Fatar has helped, um, we still have a ways to go. And so I would say that the leaders, you need to work to drive to set up the kind of arrangement that we were able to have at, at the IRS. And, and I will uh, give some credit to Mark Everson, who has, uh, when I entered the IRS, was the commissioner. And as I said, he and I built a, a strong relationship, and he enabled that partnership model to work well. And, and it takes that agency leadership to understand that you, you need, in today's world, you need to have that IT leadership, not just IT, but, but the other CXOs as well, the, you know, the CFO and the, the acquisition leadership and the like. They, they need to work in partnership together with the mission and business leadership uh, to be able to effectively establish the kinds of governance models and the kinds of best practices drive uh, successful outcomes. Um, obviously, I'm focused on IT and IT systems, um, but you, you need that kind of partnership across, the, if you will, that leadership community. And if it's out of balance either way, and I, and I mean this sincerely, you don't want the CIO to be the dominant person in the room either. I mean, he or she does not represent the business issues uh, the way that, uh, that the mission and business leaders can and, and what they need and the priorities they have. Um, but it needs to be a balanced partnership, I think, to work well. That, that would be my, my first going in thought. The other thing is that there's nothing like having wins. And, and I think if you're a CIO today in particular and you're coming in and you're trying to establish that partnership model, delivering quickly on some wins. Uh, pick some things that are low-hanging fruit, you want to call it that, or things that you can do quickly in today's world to, to drive some value creation for the business and mission and start to build some rapport and some credibility. Um, if you want that partnership model to work, you, you've got to be a valuable partner to the mission and business. And, and there's nothing that, that cements that uh, quicker than actually delivering value for them. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.